You're listening to the Reynolds Hotbox. 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 The Reynolds Hotbox. This is the Reynolds Hotbox, and I'm your host, Madison Lloyd, and I'm here with Sean Pennell, and we're going to be talking about her graduate research in spirituality among service learning instructors. Welcome, Sean. How are you doing today? Hi, Madison. I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on your show. Yeah, thanks for coming. So um, just to start off, how about you tell us something like a little interesting fact about yourself? Oh, an interesting fact about myself. Yes. Um, I very briefly for two days went on tour with uh, Bad Brains and the Beastie Boys. What? I know. (laughs) That's kind of (laughs) cool. I had to fight for my right to party. (laughs) (laughs) That's awesome. So um, we're here to talk about your graduate research topic, and that is spirituality among service learning instructors. Can you explain, like, what a service learning instructor is before we hop into the core of your, um, your research? Sure, absolutely. So service learning is a pedagogy or a teaching and learning tool um, that blends community service with academia. And so a service learning professor or instructor is somebody who's made the choice to take their course content and make it into a service learning designated course. And they believe that doing that service with their students outside of the classroom will somehow benefit their students more than if they just read a textbook. So it's more of a hands-on experience. It is a hands-on. It's It gets you out of the classroom, and it's very specific to um, democracy and trying to help students get out into their community so that they can be members of the you know democratic society. Uh, but it also wants to retain that academic piece, and so we need to tie it to academia because when students go out there, sometimes they see things that reinforce stereotypes and um, give them bad information. And so they sort of need to process the things that they've seen and experienced in their service learning environment um, in order to get a better uh, handle on, you know, what is really going on. Sometimes we come up with quick answers and um, it takes kind of a trained professional to say, well, 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 let's, you know, take a step back. Maybe you should do a little bit of research on that. Maybe you should ask some different questions of your service learning placement. So um, in that academic environment, it helps the students see why service learning um, is important in their field of French or engineering or economics. And you were telling me a little bit about the history of it before we started recording. Could you tell us a little bit about some of those examples that you were describing to me? Yeah, sure. So um, really early, early on in the 18, late 1800s, there were some examples of people using the service learning model, although they didn't call it that back then. It wasn't actually coined service learning until the 1960s, but they were doing things to help marginalized people to integrate into the United States. So um, one group helped uh, African-Americans to learn their constitution so that they could vote because that used to be one of the stipulations for voting. Um, Another uh, group helped incoming immigrants 
learn about great art so that they could increase their culture capital as uh, new American citizens. Um, but we really get uh, the, the crux of what we believe service learning to be from John Dewey from the 1930s. And John Dewey was known as the father of experiential education. And he uh, really believed that getting students out of the classroom and into their community was important for a democratic society. He believed students wouldn't learn a lot if they were just sitting at a desk. He thought that they should be out in their community so that they could find out what their community needed. And so he is who we sort of credit with um, being the progenitor of service learning and experiential education. But really, it was in the 1960s. Um, there were great people. There's a great book, um, and I'll think of it. But it's, um, it's about pioneers of service learning. And they really, there were three types. There were the type that were um, really into social justice. And there were those who really just loved the pedagogy, who loved getting their students out doing things. Mm -hmm. And then there were those who were very religious and really believed that in order to fight injustice, um, that service learning and getting their students out into the community to fight. Um, for example, uh, there was one gal who had her students in Appalachia. And rather than um, siding with the coal mines, she had her students help the coal mine workers get rights about, you know, they were getting a lot of um, black lung disease and things like that. And so uh, these towns were, they were um, company towns, and the coal mine workers were really the marginalized, oppressed they did not have the power. And so she uh, leveraged her students to go and to, um, and I don't remember all the details, but to create some sort of waves so that legislation came on the side of the coal mine workers rather than the um, coal mine owners. That's really interesting. Yeah. This is the Reynolds Top Box. I'm your host, Madison Lloyd, and I'm here with Sean Pennell, and we're talking about her graduate research in spirituality among service learning instructors. That's like sounds like a really rich history that um, surprisingly we don't learn about a lot. We do learn about learning types in high school. Like, are you more hands on? Are you more of a reader? Like, are you auditory learner? But I don't feel like we got the experience this what you're talking about truly um, being out in the community. I think that would have been a really interesting and a really productive learning experience, especially in high school as well, because that's kind of your community for so long, and, and you might not be super immersed in it. And then when you go off to college, like, you're in a new community, and it might be nice to get out into the new community and have some motivation, and you're with other new people, and there's people in the community that know that you're new to the area and want to help you kind of assimilate into that area. Absolutely. How did you land on this research topic specifically? Oh, that's a great question. So um, long before I ever heard of service learning, I did a mission trip to Kenya, Africa, and I learned so much. You know, I learned so much that didn't have anything to do with um, the religion or the mission work that I was doing, but I learned about their society. I learned about their culture. I learned about their habits. And I thought, oh, my gosh, there's so much learning that you can do taking foreign trips. And so um, 
I explored that several times, went to, back to Kenya several times, went to Fiji and uh, did different things. But I always thought, you know, this, this would be a great model for anybody to be able to learn. Um, but as with anything, it's you have to find those keywords, you know, buzzwords. And so um, yeah. uh, my advisor, Margaret Ferrara, in the College of Education, it just happened to invite me to a service learning kind of mini conference and I thought it was great. I, it really moved me to emotion, you know. It was, it was moved me emotionally. So it's always been in the back of my mind for probably the last, you know, 10, 15 years. And then um, as I was moving through the literature, um, I found other people. Cause see, for me, I started from a place of spirituality, went into travel and mm-hmm. service to that community. Um, and, and so... I knew there was something inherently spiritual about service and about mm-hmm. going and doing that. But being in secular universities, you know, um, for the most part, unless you're in a private religious college, you're in a secular um, environment. And so I just didn't know where the place for that was. But as I kept reading the literature on service learning, there are some people who were making connections between student learning and service learning and um, spirituality. And I thought that was really interesting. So for my comp exams, I, I was gonna you know, do my dissertation on spirituality among college students. And there's some really rich research that's been done on that. And then I found just kind of a niche in the research where there are actually a gap a gap in the research. So in the literature that I read, um, you have people that believe strongly in service learning, and then you have some connections that students who engage in service learning have kind of a spiritual experience. Then there's another, you know, sort of swath of um, literature that talks about spirituality among the professorate. And how it's difficult to bring your whole self, your authentic self, to work when you're a professor because we have this thing called separation of church and state, and there's a lot of misconception about it, actually. That's not in the Constitution. The separation of church and state is was a letter written between Thomas Jefferson and a Baptist mm-hmm. church. It wasn't actually written into the Constitution, but as teachers, and I was, I was a high school teacher as well, we're very fearful of, you know, crossing the line into yeah. religion. And so I, I believe it was my experience. It's what I see among my colleagues when I was a faculty member um, at the university. And then also the research um, fleshes it out that there's just a lot of lack of knowledge. You know, what am I allowed to talk about in mm-hmm. the classroom? Um, and rightly so, some professors say, I don't want to talk about my spirituality because I don't want to alienate my students. You know, there may be students of other faiths or there may be students who are atheists and I want to be able to meet and reach them all. Mm-hmm. But there's another body of research that says that when professors talk about their spirituality, that it gives sort of permission or models for students to explore their spirituality. And college age is that ripe age for spirituality to develop. Mm-hmm. And so it's um, it's sort of a travesty not to encourage students to explore their own spirituality while they're in college. And so um, I, I was looking at all of that, but what I didn't see was a connection between service learning professors and spirituality. And my hypothesis 
is that there's something inherently spiritual about these people if they're willing to um, create their own course into a service learning designated course, which is not an easy feat. I mean, it takes a lot of work. And then when those same professors or instructors go for tenure, service learning isn't necessarily something that they get a lot of credit for. That's not useful for promotion and tenure. So they've made a decision that I may actually be limiting my career in some way, and yet I'm going to do this anyway because I believe it has value. And so that's where I want my research to kind of focus in on is, is there something inherently spiritual about that individual's choice or about them personally? Mm -hmm. What is it that they're teasing out? What are the things that they see in their students that they're like, you know what, I want that. You know, I want to get that thing that I can't quite put my finger on. But rather than knowing all of the vocabulary in the textbook, I'd rather them get that thing, you know, that they just realized about working with the homeless or, um, you know, just those sorts of things. Um, so that's that's what I'm interested in. This is the Reynolds Hot Box. I'm your host, Madison Lloyd, and I'm here with Sean Pennell, and we're talking about her graduate research in spirituality among service learning instructors. That sounds really interesting. So it was basically you had gone to school and you became a teacher and then you got invited to that conference about service learning and it just kind of sparked something in you to go to grad school to research this um, um, service learning or at least spirituality within the education system. Yeah, it sort of did. I mean, I did... um... Uh, I'm I'm definitely a spiritual person myself, and so I don't always talk in terms of data, empirical, you know, mm-hmm. um, empiricism or positivism. I'm more of an intuitive, you know, faith, hope, love kind of person, and so um, I can be moved to something. And I had said I would never get a PhD because it's just a lot of work. But I had a dream. You know, I had a dream, and when I woke up from that dream, I knew, like, ah, this is what I'm supposed to do. And so I just sort of followed the coursework, um, and this presented itself to me. That sounds pretty incredible, honestly. It sounds like it was a little bit meant to be. So what specifically does your research hone in on? That's a really great question, Madison. Thanks. Um, I think kind of as I said before, I'm really interested in – professors being able to be them them full selves at work and as they're able to bring their full selves which includes their spirituality i believe that um you know spirituality can get messy because there's not a there's not a strict definition of what it is but um i think that they'll be you know better able to serve their students and their uh, university community when they can be authentic. Um, I am interested in researching that gap because it's there and that's how people, you know, kind of find their niche is to research the gap in the literature. So I am interested in that. But there is, as my chair, the chairperson of my committee has told me, you know, Sean, you might find that there's no connection. (laughs) And so there you go. That's, you know, that's the risk of research. Welcome. Hello. We are the Reynolds Media Lab. Media Lab. Podcast. Client services. Special projects. Documentaries. We are a production center at, at the, the Reynolds, Reynolds School, School of, of Journalism. Journalism. The Reynolds Media Lab. Media Lab. 
Media Lab. Welcome back to the Rental Top Box. I'm your host, Madison Lloyd, and I'm here with Sean Pennell, and we're discussing her graduate research in spirituality among service learning instructors. Yeah, so just to be, just to clarify, you're not saying, because um, we briefly addressed, you know, the separation of church and state and some mm-hmm. of the misconceptions around it, you're not saying for, for professors or instructors to bring their full religious ideology into a classroom. You're just saying don't hide who you are mm-hmm. and to be your full self, to motivate other students, to be them their whole selves. And part of being who you are is going to be your religious ideology. Whether you have one or you don't have one, that's part of who you are, and you shouldn't have to hide it in a classroom. Right, yeah. So um, definitely – you know, don't evangelize. Don't do that in the classroom. <laughs> um, but, you know, can you talk about God in a non-religious sense? Is God limited to religion? I don't, I don't know. I don't think he's that small, right? What's interesting, very interesting, actually, Madison, that I found in doing this research is I traced kind of the genesis of unbelief in the Western, Western civilization because I have done a, a fair bit of travel, and in other countries, they're they're very, very aware of God and of spirituality, and they speak of it openly. Um, you know, I've been to a couple of places in Africa, very open about spirituality. And I lived in China for a while, and um, they aren't as much, but I think they're con- you know they're under communism, so it's not. Yeah. Um, you know, you're not going to have as you much You don't have freedom. religious freedom in, in China. Yeah. But um, but in the United States, we are actually heralded as one of the most, if not the most, religious nation on the planet. And yet, one of our taboos is don't talk about religion, right? And so I was encouraged to really research the history of how unbelief came into the um, university system because... In the United States, the first college, which was Harvard, Harvard College, which was founded by the Puritans in the 1600s, mm-hmm. was founded as a school of ministry. And so the people of Massachusetts said they Massachusetts actually also founded the first school and created the first law. It was um, 1648, maybe something like that. But it was called the Old Deluder Law. And because Satan was the old deluder that... Uh, any township that had 50 families or more had to create a school so that their children could learn because they didn't want their children to be, you know, deceived. And so we have a very um, religious background, you know, a very religious history in this country. And so how is it that we became so secular? And what's interesting is it happened way back. It happened even before the founding of the United States. And um, that secularization was very interesting that it, it really sprang forth with the um, invention of the printing press because people who had marginalized ideas were now able to speak them um, as the Catholic Church was decreasing in power and the state was becoming more powerful that took some away um, as um, the stock exchange and banking system arose. That you know that created unbelief. I mean, it's just it's incredible, like kind of all of the little steps that happened. 
But by the time that you got to the United States, we were really in a place of what was called deism and the beginning of humanism and uh, the rise of science, science as natural law. They used to call Mm -hmm. it natural law. Uh, Natural law was very um, becoming very important. And they used to use natural law in the schools of philosophy as a point of worship. They would say, mm-hmm. look at, look at um, this thing we're learning about photosynthesis. Look at how magnificent God is to have created such a, you know, such a system. Mm-hmm. Or when they're looking at the human body, look at how magnificent God is to have created such a complex system. Mm-hmm. And now it's kind of used in, the, in reverse to basically disprove that there's a God. religion yeah yeah so it's very it's very interesting how that happened but it was it was kind of slow but what what's interesting is that um, after the Civil War in what that was the 1860s after the Civil War a lot of people became more atheistic or more humanistic interestingly because of how, horrific it was to see what people were doing to each other people became very um yeah very disheartened another interesting thing though and i have to pull back i don't know i don't remember exactly when copernicus copernicus and galileo are but when they found out that um that the earth that the sun didn't revolve or the universe didn't revolve around the earth but it revolved Mm -hmm. around the sun yeah that actually in people's mind distance them from God because could you imagine this massive paradigm change like we're the center you know we're humans God created us we're the center of the universe and then to find out nope that is not true that really acted as a psychological barrier between humans and the belief in God I I mean I can completely understand why too sure This is the Reynolds Hot Box. I'm your host, Madison Lloyd, and I'm here with Sean Pennell, and we're talking about her graduate research in spirituality among service learning instructors. Um, so for your research, like what are your main topics like in your in your in your research? Um, like are you trying to figure out are you trying to research um are there t- certain types of instructors who maybe lean more into their spirituality or are you trying to research like why professors are leaning away from it or trying to kind of find the middle ground yeah that's a good question um so you're you're gonna have to make me think like what am i what am i after um research that other people have done shows Mm -hmm. that there are certain types of professors that um are more spiritual than others, at least as of the early 2000s, you know, um, uh, males, older males or older white males are more or less spiritual than uh, younger white males. African-American males are more spiritual. You know, uh, people with children tend to be more spiritual. Uh, Let's see. Um, Caucasian women or white women tend to be, if they have a liberal leaning, they tend to be less spiritual. So there's there's information from other researchers that kind of give us that, you know, that information. But I believe that everybody's spiritual, to be honest. I believe that at our core, we were created to be spiritual and to connect spiritually. And so I have a definition 
of spirituality that I've created. My committee um, asked me to really tease out religion from spirituality. So they both have very distinct definitions. So in my research, um, they're both very distinct. But how do you define religion in contrast to spirituality? Um, that's a good question. I don't have my definitions with me, but religion is based more on faith in a God or a belief system because there are some belief systems that don't actually believe in a God, but yes. they have beliefs. Mm -hmm. And so it's it travels more along the line of adherence to that, to the rituals behind it, to the um, practices that um, people do in support of their God or their um, belief system. So that's, that's that. Um, spirituality does mention um, the pursuit of God or a transcendent being, because not everybody wants to call, you know, mm -hmm. wants to call it God. But um, it also has more to do with connection, connection with others, connection with, you know, the earth, the environment, connection in society. It has to do with um, self-development, growing, you know, um, developing your, your character in a way that is sort of outside of yourself, not your own discipline, but, but sort of something out, else outside of you, you know, making this shift or this transformation. We call it transformation inside of you. Mm -hmm. And so I believe that everybody has that capacity, even atheists. And so when I um, do my interviews with them, I'm going to ask them questions. And if they respond in a way that matches my definition of spirituality, I'm going to label them as spiritual, whether they would label themselves as spiritual or not. Mm -hmm. But um, I think that there are things that we do that we might not be aware of, you know. So. And because you're a grad student, I, I'm assuming you don't take regular classes like an undergraduate. <laughs> I'm, I'm assuming that you're focusing primarily on your research. And in doing that, like, what are you doing to conduct your research? How are, like, are you only surveying professors at UNR? Are you surveying, um, like, professors only at, like, university-level institutions or community colleges as well, as well? That's a really great question. Um, <clears throat> so... Uh, just for the record, graduate students do take classes. I just was wondering. That. Yeah, no, they do. Um, so um, uh, PhD-level students have to take um, a, a lot of classes, a lot of mm -hmm. um, credits and classes, but a lot of them are um, research classes. And okay. so that's what we're learning to do is really conduct research. So we have to take a slew of those classes. But you're right. at this sense. At this level, I am out of those classes, and I'm in the dissertation process. So... Uh, two years ago, I did my what are called my comp exams. So for my college, that was three months of rigorous work to answer three questions, three or four questions. And then those questions should have, if I had just moved them over neat, nicely and neatly, would have been chapters one, two, and three of my dissertation. But I just wanted to choose a subset. And so I really had to do it a lot more research. Mm -hmm. And so it's taken me a while to um, to get to where I am right now, but I'm in what's called the proposal stage. So okay. when you do a dissertation, you have to, after your comps, you write a proposal and your committee um, either okays your proposal or says you need to go back and work on it. 
And so your proposal is basically what you're saying, I'm proposing this as my research study. And so if they find it to be valuable, interesting, um, if you have your research style done well, like if you know your system, then they'll say, okay. And then what you do is you go to the um, Institutional Review Board. We call it the IRB mm-hmm. because I'm doing uh, research on human subjects. It's called human subject research. And so I have to apply to the institution to do human research, sub- uh, human subject research. Mm-hmm. And so if they um, say that it's okay, then I get to go and recruit professors. I'm just recruiting from UNR at this point, but if my committee says, "Hey, I think you should open, you know, open up your, um, you know, where you're going to do your research," then I will certainly do that. Mm-hmm. But um, as people always tell me with your dissertation, just get it done. <laughs> you got to just get it done. So um, I will just be looking at service learning professors at UNR, and I believe there's 58 of them. 58 who may not be actively doing service learning but have done service learning in the past. That sounds really interesting. Um, I think it would be an interesting um, thing for most professors to look at, even just even just service learning in general. Um, I think even though maybe we don't do what specifically entails under service learning, I feel like the journalism school, you do a lot of active learning, um, going out into the community. We do a lot yeah. of community um, outreach. We do a lot of community stories. We do a lot of... Reno focused um, reporting. Yeah. So I think that even though maybe it's not specifically classified, I feel like it kind of falls under that I inadvertently. Um, and yeah, I had a great time listening and learning about your research topic. It was really interesting and, and kind of enlightening um, to hear about. So um, thank you for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Madison. This is my first podcast, so um, thanks for giving me my debut. (laughs) You're welcome. Thanks for listening to The Reynolds Hotbox. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter at The Reynolds Sandbox. So, Sean, how was your time in the hotbox? I loved it. It's it's clean in here. It's beautiful. Um, You have good equipment, and uh, I really enjoyed enjoyed the uh, interview process. Thank you once again for coming on the show, Sean. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to subscribe to The Hotbox and follow us on Instagram and Twitter at The Reynolds Sandbox.